What's happening, food eaters? This is the Food Labels Revealed podcast with your host, Mel Weinstein, the self-professed prophet of processed foods. This is episode number 55. This program is being recorded at the end of September 2020. The COVID-19 viral pandemic in the USA is about to start its eighth month since wreaking nationwide havoc in March. Furthermore, this country is being hit really hard. The USA has just 4% of the world's population, but currently we have 22% of the worldwide cases and 21% of the deaths caused by the virus. What is going on there? Ordinarily, I would not talk about the pandemic in this podcast. Everybody else is doing that. You can't turn a news program on or look at social media without encountering myriad COVID-19 stories. My contribution to the news barrage will be a little bit different. A take you don't hear very much in the media. There is increasing, although indirect, evidence that the American diet is linked to the severity of the pandemic in this country. So, with some reservations, given that this topic ranges far afield from my area of expertise, I will attempt to connect the dots between catching the virus and suffering from its complications by looking at the immune system, pre-existing conditions, the standard American diet, and ultra-processed foods. So, this will be a challenge, but let's go for it. Just recently, I started reading a book published in 2005 called The Great Influenza by John Barry, which details the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918. At this point, I'm only about a third of the way through the book, but it's been a real mind-blower so far. Before you start yelling at your podcast player, I I know that flu viruses and COVID-19 have differing pedigrees. They are different pathogens. However, there are some similarities, not the least of which is that they both primarily attack and subdue the respiratory system, with deadly pneumonia as a frequent outcome. Here's a trivia question. In what country did the Spanish flu emerge. Tick-tock, 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 tick-tock. If you said Spain or any other Spanish-speaking country, you were dead wrong. The Spanish flu, or as it was colloquially known in the day as the grip, started in the United States. There's not a total agreement among epidemiologists as to exactly where it started, but many scientists think that it began in Haskell County, Kansas, west of Dodge City, where a short-lived and mild flu epidemic broke out in the winter of 1917-1918. At that time, the country was gearing up to enter World War I, and temporary military camps were being constructed to house an ever-increasing number of new recruits. One of these was Camp Funston, near Junction City, Kansas. It was the second largest one in the country. It is believed that a young recruit in late February, exposed to the flu, traveled from Haskell County, about 300 miles west, 
to Camp Funston. Once in Camp Funston, the flu virus spread quickly. Within three weeks, because of the cramped quarters and the housing units and the cold of winter, over 1,100 soldiers had to be hospitalized, and 38 men died. Since Camp Funston transferred soldiers all over the country, the soldiers carried the flu virus to other places. Eventually, they were sent to France, where the illness got introduced to Europe. In early 2018, the flu virus was dangerous but not plague-like. By the summer of 2018, however, the virus had morphed into a more virulent and deadly form, probably due to the close confinement of soldiers fighting the war. By September 2018, the Spanish flu transformed into one of the worst pandemics in history, if not the worst. Worldwide, the flu infected one-third of the world's population and killed 17 to 50 million people, including 2.6 million Europeans and up to 675,000 Americans, which was, at that time, about 0.7% of the U.S. population. It was over 10 times more deadly than COVID-19 so far. The great influence of book makes some very important observations that we should take note of today. Then, as now, politics got in the way of carrying out intelligent public health decisions. Unfortunately, government and institutional leaders often failed to recognize the calamity at hand and got in the way of protecting the public. The Spanish flu was very contagious. Doctors and medical researchers determined that it was a respiratory illness that could be easily transmitted from exposure to fluids from the nose and mouth, whether through the air or through direct contact. Because medical personnel recognized that type of transmission spread the disease, the first use of protective masks to control the contagion was initiated in 1918. There are many archival photos of medical staff wearing the masks, as well as soldiers, policemen, and even patients. Whatever the pathogen was, it could mutate and become more deadly as it hopped from person to person. So what appeared early on as just a somewhat dangerous illness transformed into a scary one. And the deadliness of the virus increased as the weather turned cold in the fall and winter of 2018-2019. All right, as already stated, the flu and COVID viruses are different organisms, but their modes of operation do have some similarities. According to the Centers for Disease Control, these similarities include may be asymptomatic to severe. Typical symptoms include fever, cough, difficulty breathing, fatigue, sore throat, runny or stuffy nose, muscle aches, headache, and gastrointestinal distress. There may be a lag time between infection and the signs of the illness. The virus can be spread at least one day before symptoms are experienced. Transmission primarily occurs via aerosol droplets from coughs, sneezes, or just through talking, which are then inhaled by others nearby. Or droplets might land on surfaces that are contacted by others, 
and those get unknowingly transferred to the nose or mouth. Both infections can result in severe illnesses and complications. In general, the people at greater risk include older adults, people with underlying medical conditions, and pregnant women. Complications can include pneumonia, respiratory failure, acute respiratory distress syndrome called ARDS, A-R-D-S, which refers to fluid in the lungs, sepsis, which is extreme response to infection, heart attacks and stroke, organ failure, worsening of chronic medical conditions, inflammation of the heart and the brain, and secondary bacterial infections. There are also a number of differences between the actions of these pathogens, but I'll only mention three here because uh, I find them startling. Early on in the COVID-19 pandemic, we heard that the coronavirus was particularly harmful for senior citizens. That's why places housing older adults like senior living communities, assisted living facilities, and nursing homes were quickly buttoned up. That made sense given that older folks may have weakened immune systems and preconditions that would make them more vulnerable to infection and unable to fight it off. But with the Spanish flu, a large proportion of the people who died were in their late teens and 20s. Medical researchers think the reason why was because it wasn't the virus that killed them, but the uncontrollable response of their immune system, which was very strong in young people. You may have heard about the cytokine storm in COVID-19 news stories. That's an over-response of the immune system to an infection, which causes excessive inflammation. The immune system, the body's primary defense, then becomes its worst enemy. Another trait of the Spanish flu was how quickly it could kill. A person may have felt fine in the morning, but be dead by nighttime. Lastly, many victims of the Spanish flu became cyanotic. That literally means turning blue. Because their lungs became so congested, oxygen in the lungs was unable to get transferred to the blood. Oxygenated blood is red. Unoxygenated blood is blue, as in veins. With the deprivation of oxygen, the body took on a blue cast. That must have been totally frightening to everybody who encountered it. Of course, patients who became cyanotic quickly died afterwards. COVID-19 seems just as contagious as the Spanish flu, but it's not as deadly. However, since it doesn't kill off its hosts as readily, COVID may linger around longer and infect more people. Here in September, we're bracing for the next wave as well as anticipating the accompanying flu season. Let's turn our attention to the vulnerabilities for succumbing to COVID-19. Official name for the virus is SARS-CoV-2, which translates to Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus 2. If you look at the medical literature, you'll find quite a number of articles on the topic of lifestyle vulnerabilities. But if you tune into the news media, you'll likely hear very little about it. 
I think the reason is that most people don't like to hear about their bad habits and furthermore, don't want to take responsibility for their personal health. The media, knowing this, doesn't want to tick people off. They might stop listening. There are a group of related abnormalities that, taken together, cause people to be more vulnerable to viral infections. They fall into the nebulous category called metabolic syndrome and include such problems as abdominal obesity, that is visceral fat around the midsection, high blood sugar, which could involve prediabetes or diabetes, high blood pressure, also known as hypertension, and cardiovascular disease, symptomized by high blood cholesterol and blood fat. It's estimated that about 25% of the adult population in the U.S. has metabolic syndrome, with the proportions increasing with age, particularly among racial and ethnic minorities. Let's take a detailed look at these abnormalities as they relate to viral infection. First, the role of fat. When you get infected by a coronavirus, it invades a cell in the respiratory tract by latching on to an ACE2 receptor. That acronym stands for angiotensin-converting enzyme. This protein molecule provides the virus a gateway into a cell. Once the virus gets in, it can hijack the cell's reproductive process to replicate itself and make thousands of copies. When the cell dies and splits open, the viral copies can invade other cells to continue the process. The infection quickly spreads and takes over organs, like the lungs. Guess where the ACE2 receptors come from? Yes, fat cells. Obesity is one of the biggest risk factors for COVID-19. According to Britain's National Health Service, being overweight raises the chances of dying by 40%. Yes, yeah, I said 40%. A body mass index between 30 and 34 doubles the chances of needing intensive care compared to a BMI of under 30. If a person's BMI is over 35 or higher, which is morbid obesity levels, then the likelihood of requiring that type of care is nearly four times higher. The obesity risk for death falls between dementia, which is number one, and heart disease, which is number three. In Britain, the rate of being overweight or obese is 67% for men and 60% for women. In the States, the rate is 74% for men and 67% for women. There is another respiratory problem associated with obesity. Fat cells can produce a cell type called myofibroblasts, which are responsible for pulmonary fibrosis, a scarring of lung tissue. This scarring reduces oxygen uptake by the blood and causes shortness of breath. The risk of developing this disease increases with age. Obesity challenges the body in other ways as well. 
The immune systems of obese people are constantly engaged to protect and repair cells that have been damaged by inflammation. Their bodies are immunocompromised. This means fewer resources are available to fight off new infections. Also, excess weight can inhibit lung expansion, reducing the oxygen getting to organs. That's why obese people experience lung failure quicker compared to thinner people and are more subject to getting pneumonia. The following information comes from an article published in April of this year in the journal Nutrients. The title is COVID-19, the Inflammation Link and the Role of Nutrition in Potential Mitigation. From the article, quote, Although the lungs are considered the main target organ of SARS-CoV-2, the virus can affect many other organs, including the heart and blood vessels, the kidneys, the gut, and brain, through various mechanisms. It has been widely proposed that one of the ways the virus can critically affect these organs is through an intense inflammatory reaction, while other mechanisms have yet to be elucidated. For instance, it is now documented that COVID-19 patients may be predisposed to arterial and venous thromboembolisms, that's a long word meaning blood clots, due to excessive inflammation, diffuse intravascular coagulation, and hypoxia, which is oxygen deprivation. In a Dutch study of COVID-19 patients, one-third exhibited blood clots. Therefore, antiplatelet agents may be considered to treat COVID-19. Overall, considering inflammation plays a significant role in COVID-19 pathology, it would seem logical that it would be important to control cytokine production, given that they are responsible for the accumulation of immune cells and fluids. As such, Anti-inflammatory treatments may hold promise for the management of COVID-19 complications, end quote. As mentioned earlier, inflammation is a real problem in fighting viruses. So anything we can do to reduce inflammation in the body will help in defending against the disease. Let's look at some stats as regard preconditions and comorbidities. The American Health Association reported the following about the initial outbreak in Wuhan, China. The death rate among people with cardiovascular disease was 10.5%. For those with diabetes, it was 7.3%. For those with pre-existing respiratory diseases, it was 6.3%. For people with high blood pressure, it was 6%. And for cancer victims, it was 5.6%. In Italy, 99% of the deaths from COVID-19, yes, 99%, involved cancer, diabetes, lung disease, and 76% involved high blood pressure. Since the virus attacks the respiratory system, it certainly makes sense that a pre-existing respiratory disease would be a comorbidity. Also, having heart disease makes sense as a comorbidity since, as the lungs fail to provide adequate oxygen to the, to the blood, the heart has to work harder. A weakened heart due to cardiovascular disease 
could succumb under such circumstances. Studies from the past have shown that people with heart disease are at higher risk for heart attacks when they just get the flu. But why is high blood pressure a problem? In America, about two-thirds of people over 60 have high blood pressure. That's a bunch of people. Drugs that treat high blood pressure can raise levels of the ACE2 enzyme that helps the virus invade cells. Also, hypertension can damage arteries and reduce the flow of blood to the heart, again, making it work harder. Overall, serious underlying health conditions are red flags for people suffering from COVID-19. Last March, the CDC, Centers for Disease Control, reported that 78% of ICU, that's intensive care unit admissions, and 71% of non-ICU hospitalizations for the virus were caused by prior disease conditions. Diabetes, chronic lung disease, and heart disease were frequently encountered. Also, 27% of patients who were not admitted to a hospital had at least one underlying health condition. All right, so we know that people whose health is compromised are not going to do well if they get the virus. Given that a vaccine to prevent the infection or antivirus medication to kill it don't exist yet, how can a person defend themselves from the pandemic? First, I don't think there is any way to keep from getting infected, no matter how healthy you might be. It's like trying to avoid a cold. However, the next best thing is to be in such a state of optimal health that you resist the effects of the infection and thereby get rid of it quickly. That means having no pre-existing conditions and maintaining a strong immune system. Now that's a tall order in our society. But here's where diet and exercise kick in. Last March, there was published a CNN article entitled, how to strengthen your immunity during the coronavirus pandemic. From the article, quote, begin by filling your plate with immune-boosting nutrients. One of the best ways to stay healthy is to eat a nutritious diet. That's because our immune system relies on a steady supply of nutrients to do its job. For a starter dose of immune-boosting vitamins, minerals, and antioxidants, Fill half of your plate with vegetables and fruits. End quote. The article goes on to discuss individual nutrients like vitamin D, vitamin C, omega-3s, beta-carotene, which is a precursor for vitamin A, and prebiotics and probiotics for gut health. For more details, check out the article. Another article goes one step further. The paper, entitled The Impact of Nutrition on COVID-19, was published in July 2020 in the journal Brain, Behavior, and Immunity. From the article, quote, The high prevalence of these risk factors worldwide, but especially in the U.S. and other developed countries, is likely driven by increased consumption of the typical Western diet consisting of high amounts of saturated fat, refined carbohydrates and sugars, 
and low levels of fiber, unsaturated fats, and antioxidants. End quote. Furthermore, quote, consumption of a Western diet significantly impairs adaptive immunity while ramping up innate immunity, leading to chronic inflammation and severely impairing host defense against viral pathogens. Given that the elderly and African-American communities have a greater inherent sensitivity to inflammatory modulators, consumption of unhealthy diets by these groups could pose an amplified risk to severe COVID-19 pathology, end quote. Well, they don't mince words. Uh, eat a lousy diet and you'll suffer during a pandemic. They go on to say, quote, thus the access to healthy, fresh, whole foods should be made more readily available to those who cannot normally afford it in order to relieve the chronic stress burden in these communities. Indeed, studies show that consuming healthy foods has a rapid anti-inflammatory effect even in the presence of obesity pathology. In summary, it is critical to consider the impact of lifestyle habits such as consumption of unhealthy diets on the susceptibility to COVID-19 and recovery. Furthermore, the large number of people that will recover from COVID-19 may lead to a spike in chronic medical conditions that could be further exacerbated by unhealthy diets or in vulnerable populations. Therefore, it is our recommendation that individuals refrain from eating foods high in saturated fats and sugar and instead consume high amounts of fiber, whole grains, unsaturated fats, and antioxidants to boost immune function. End quote. Finally, all this information about COVID-19 leads us back to the reason for this episode. The purpose of this podcast has always been to investigate the health hazards of highly processed foods. Not only junk and fast foods, but most of the packaged foods found in groceries, box stores, convenience stores, and others. Back in May 2019, in episode number 39, I described a major study, probably the first of its kind, that attempted to connect health outcomes with the consumption of overly processed foods. This groundbreaking article, published in the British Medical Journal, was entitled Association Between Consumption of Ultra-Processed Foods and All-Cause Mortality. The study was a prospective cohort, a type of study that gathers data on the behaviors of a large group of people through interviews to determine links, if any, between the behaviors and outcomes of interest. In this case, almost 20,000 people aged 20 to 91 were interviewed over a 15-year period from 1999 to 2014 using a food frequency questionnaire. Their food and drink consumption were monitored to determine the consumption of highly processed foods. Here's what was found. Study participants who consumed the most amounts of highly processed foods had a higher risk for all-cause mortality. There was a significant dose-response relationship. For every extra serving of ultra-processed foods, for those people eating the most processed foods, the mortality increased by 18%. That's significant. 
in the last 30 years, there has been a tremendous increase in the availability and consumption of ultra-processed foods. These foods typically have low nutritional quality and high energy density. That is, they're highly caloric. Over the last 20 years, the consumption has nearly tripled from 11 to 32% of daily calorie intake. Ultra-processed foods are derived from industrial formulations consisting mostly of food derivatives and additives with little, if any, whole foods. Often they are loaded with sugar. From the article, quote, A meta-analysis found a statistically significant association between consumption of some specific ultra-processed foods, that is, sugar-sweetened beverages, red meat and processed meat, and mortality. In the French Nutrinet Santé cohort, authors found statistically significant associations between a higher consumption of ultra-processed foods and an increased risk of cancer and irritable bowel syndrome. In addition, early consumption of ultra-processed foods was associated with a higher incidence of dyslipidemia, that's an abnormal amount of fat in the blood, in Brazilian children and with a higher risk of overweight or obesity and hypertension in a Spanish cohort, end quote. The authors of the article conclude, quote, Our results suggest that an increased consumption of ultra-processed food is associated with a higher hazard of all-cause mortality. Improving diet based on adherence to minimally processed food, a key aspect of the Mediterranean diet, has been shown to protect against chronic disease and all-cause mortality. Discouraging the consumption of ultra-processed foods, targeting products, taxation, and marketing restrictions on ultra-processed products, and promotion of fresh or minimally processed foods should be considered part of important health policy to improve global public health. End of quote. This is fairly new research, but there have been other studies to confirm these correlations. As the evidence builds, it's becoming clear that as we consume larger and larger quantities of foods that are chock full of synthetic and industrial ingredients, devoid of essential nutrients but full of empty calories, high in levels of salt, oil, and sugar, and low in fiber, our health declines. In the same decades that have seen an inordinate increase in the consumption of ultra-processed foods and decreases in physical activity, there has been, around the world, unprecedented increases in obesity rates, diabetes, hypertension, and cardiovascular diseases, the same conditions that set people up for terrible outcomes when they get infected with deadly viruses. In summary, I think the writing is very boldly on the wall. Many of the foods we are eating are harmful. They are not the kinds of poison that kill quickly, but they gradually undermine our health, shorten our lives, and weaken our immune systems such that we can't easily recover from life-threatening infections like COVID-19. How did we get there? During the last 150 years, our food system has radically changed. 
We allowed it to happen through our unconscious food choices. We traded wholesome and healthy food for convenience, cheapness, dopamine-driven pleasure, and unprecedented availability. Our bodies are paying the price as the diseases of metabolic disorder wreak havoc. Will this pandemic be a wake-up call? Will we become more conscious and less controlled by our reckless desires for bad food? Can we release ourselves from marketing influences? Can we give up bad habits? Who knows? We'll see. To all the listeners in podcast land, old and new, I appreciate you tuning in. If you have a little more time, I'd greatly appreciate a five-star rating at the iTunes store. You can find all the episodes of Food Labels Revealed and their show notes at the hosting website called Podbean. That's at www.podbean.com or just by Googling Food Labels Revealed. And of course, you can always listen to the podcast on your smartphone or tablet by downloading a podcast app like Apple Podcasts or Google Play. If you have a question or comment on anything about food ingredients or this podcast or, or just want to say hello, drop me a line at foodlabelsrevealed at gmail.com. That's foodlabelsrevealed, all one string, at gmail.com. Finally, I have a Facebook page that is an adjunct to the podcast. Frequently, I post news stories related to food ingredients, processed foods, and food trends. Just search in Facebook under Food Labels Revealed Podcast. And please give it a like. For next month's show, I'll probably return to looking at food ingredients and new products that are currently showing up on grocery store shelves. Until later, remember this. If you want to eat well and keep yourself healthy, eat food mainly from natural plants, not manufacturing plants. The outro music piece is called Comfortable Mystery 3, composed by Kevin McLeod.